Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. Every now and then I have the opportunity to speak at other churches, and one of the churches that asks me to speak every year is a church called New Life Church up in Northern Virginia. It's in Chantilly, and every August they do a speaker series. They bring in outside speakers, and they ask me to come up there, and this year they asked me, because usually when they, they ask me, they say, preach whatever you want, so that's really easy because I just pull out a sermon I've done before and be like, all right, I'll do that, and this year they said, hey, we want you to bring your best sermon you've ever done on marriage. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, let me go back and look. And so I I keep track of a big spreadsheet of all the messages I've delivered here in the last 11 years. And I went back and I looked, and I was like, oh, I haven't done sermons on marriage. Like, and that's weird, right? Like, a lot of churches do entire series on marriage. I have not done sermons on marriage. I found, I found a, panel that I, a panel discussion we did one time. I found a sermon that I kind of co-taught with my wife one time. And then I found one sermon I had done uh, on, on marriage about nine years ago or something. And I was like, that's, that's pretty weird. And, and there's, it's probably not right. I probably should talk about it every now and then or, like, make it at least a sermon, right? And so I'm going to do one today. Uh, which I, because I, because I, I haven't done it, um, and I think part of the reason I haven't done it, certainly a lot, I haven't done it a lot, is because um, I know our audience is not all married, and so I always try to make the messages broadly applicable to you. Know, just let me reach as many people as possible, and there's plenty of single people that go to this church, and they're always that has always been the case, and so I, I don't want to do messages that are just about one particular topic where it only applies to one group of people, and I, and I try to reach everyone. So I've been hesitant to do it, but I think I, I, I might be missing something there because I think marriage is a thing, and it's a, it's a big thing, and it's an important thing, and it's something worth talking about, and the scripture actually has a lot of wisdom on it, and so why not go there, and why not look at it for, uh, for, for a bit? And, and I think it actually fits really well to kind of wrap up this series. We've been in a series called Climb. We started five weeks ago, and the idea of Climb is that there are two mountains you can climb in life. The first mountain is the mountain of success and career and advancement and like accumulation and getting this stuff and like becoming sort of the American dream kind of successful that a lot of people get on that, we get on that kind of that route and we go, I'm going to climb that mountain and become successful there. And then a lot of people discover along the way that 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 ain't it, like that there's something else in life. And so we start to climb, potentially, we start to climb the second mountain. David Brooks writes about it in his book that came out this year, The Second Mountain, which is where I got the idea. He said, hey, there's a second mountain. It's a mountain of significance and meaning and purpose and connection and love and community and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and so what we've been saying in this series is if you want to climb that second mountain, you're going to need a different set of skills than you had for the first mountain. And so we've been talking about different things along the way that you grab onto as part of your journey up the second mountain. And one of them was vocation. We talked about that last week, the value of vocation. We talked about the value of community, how we need to be in community. We're not designed to be alone, but to be part of a a larger group. We talked about the church and and relationships and friendships. Um, And we talked about faith and why faith matters and why faith versus no faith at all. And what what does that mean? We've talked about that over the last couple weeks. And I want to wrap it up today with what he wraps up in, in in, in the book, uh, the second mountain, he talks about the value of marriage and, and how that's valuable um, and the commitments that you make in marriage and how that's valuable in the climb for the second mountain. Now, to talk about marriage, first you have to kind of go like, well, what good is marriage? Like, why do we even have it? And that's actually a pretty, 
A pretty modern Western attitude about marriage is, meh, like, do we even need it anymore? What's the point of it? Because we're getting, and, and we're getting married, we're sort of delaying marriage later and later. Like, if you'd gone back hundreds of years ago, you go, okay, what age is, if I had asked you hundreds of years ago, what's the right age to get married? You probably would have said, like, I don't know, 16, roughly, you know? If I said to you now, what age should your son or daughter get married, you would not say 16. You'd be like, that's crazy talk. Like, nobody's ready for that. How about 18? Nope, not ready for that. How about 20? Not really. You're, like, doing school or you're in the military. You're doing something, but you don't have time for that. You're not ready for that. Not at 20. How about 21? Nope, not really. Not ready for it. 25? Mm, Okay, maybe you're starting to know yourself about ready. 30? Okay, fine. Get married at 30. 40? That's a little late. So we, 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 like... We like make this very narrow window and we've moved it over the years. In fact, in 1961, uh, the average age women got married in this country was 21. The average age men got married was 23. Uh, today, that number is 27.6 for women and 20, 29.3 for men. So we've moved the age, we moved it back, and I get why. Uh, we have cynicism around marriage. We're like, eh. I don't, you know, I, I, I do premarital counseling with couples, and I have a hard time finding a couple who can point to a good marriage in their life to say, like, oh, my parents were married and it was great or whatever. Like, there's not a lot of that. We're very cynical about marriage. We don't think it's going to work. Um, we don't want it. We say things like, I don't want to be tied down, we old ball and chain. We just have all that kind of language around, like, I don't want to know if I want to do that. I want to be free to do my thing. And we, and we have different educational pursuits and other things that we're, we're chasing after in our 20s, and so we kind of continue to keep pushing marriage off. Um, and I understand why, why we delay it, but let's talk about, and, and let me try to elevate a, a good example of, of what marriage is and what it's supposed to be, and let's talk about what it, where it came from. And to do that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, we did this when we did a series on women last month, or in August, we did a series aimed at women, and we, and we said, okay, let's look at how women were created, Genesis 1 and 2, go into that. Uh, we did it for a man series before that, how are men created? If you're going to know what something's for, you have to know what it was designed for. And so when you want to look at marriage, you want to go back to the beginning and go, what was the purpose of this thing? Why was marriage here to begin with? And maybe that's not something you've thought a lot about, but let's look at it when God creates uh, men and women and puts them on the earth, what was his intention there with marriage? What is the purpose of it? Uh, we'll go to Genesis chapter one. God creates land and plants and animals and all this stuff in Genesis one. It kind of recounts the whole thing. And at the end of all that, on the sixth day, God creates humanity. And listen to what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. This should sound familiar. And over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so God creates man and woman together and says, all right, I I, want to build something with you. And you're going to see in a moment what's generally considered the first marriage of of these two together. And he says, I'm going to build something from you, and and I'm going to give you a job. Your job is be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I'm starting with two of you. Make more, so have children, and, and like build this thing out so there are more people on the earth. That's one thing. And then twice it kind of mentions the, the, the fact that they're called to uh, have dominion over the earth or, or subdue the earth or like take care of the plants and the animals and like build something out and make something of the raw materials that God gave. So they have, they have this job. And, 
I think pretty early on you see that, um, that God intended uh, marriage for, to have a purpose, that we're doing something. It gets unpacked a little more in Genesis chapter 2. Um, God makes Adam first. And Adam starts naming all the animals, and you know, okay, here's a rhino, and here's a zebra, and here's a dog, and he sees all that, and it's like, yeah, this is good, but it's not quite what I'm looking for, because he feels alone. And God says, all right, I've got an idea, and God makes a woman and presents her to Adam, and, and they have this, this first meeting, and then there's sort of this, what's considered like this marriage between them. So listen to the way it's described, Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is key, this verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The origin of marriage is traced back to, to this, the, the idea that a man is going to leave his mother and father and a woman will leave her mother and father and that they will form something new. They will become this one flesh union where two uh, similar in that we're both human flesh but different to each other. We are coming together and forming this one. The one flesh is a mild sexual reference, right? Like that we're coming together and, and forming this one new thing um, and and. And that's how it, and that's going to be the building block of, of this marriage. And theoretically, it will produce children and it's going to build structure out from there. God in, in, intends that it, a crucial piece of this is you leave your parents, you come together, and you form this, this new thing. This is how God's going to fill, fill the earth. Um, I asked my small group, I lead a small group on, on Sundays of uh, young married couples without children, and um, they've all kind of newlyweds. And I asked them, like, why did you want to get married? Just kind of go around the room, like, why did you even want to do this? And I think the number one answer from the group was, I want, uh, I want to build a family. Even just the two of us or kids or whatever, I want to build something here. I, we, we all have this sense of, oh, there's like a structure in place here that if I get married, I can build upon this to, to create something uh, in the world. And that's a, it's a good thing. I want, to, I want to put down roots. And in a sense, people are saying, I want to be tied down to this person. Which is weird because our culture really says don't get tied down. But, but we all have a sense of like, well, no, but marriage does kind of tie you down. Um, and, it, and it does sort of keep you grounded in a way. And that's actually not a bad thing. Even the people who are like, I don't want to be tied down. Even they, in a, in a quiet moment, would admit, actually, I, I don't know that I would mind being tied down. I, I just need to be on, it needs to be, it needs to be right. Um, so... Looking at what marriage is for, it's to build the structure in part uh, where, we can, where we can have a, a family, um, which is very different than what our culture says marriage is for. If you, if you survey the culture and say, why just broad culture, um, I, I mean, I've read articles in the New York Times about like what good is marriage and that kind of thing. If you, if you kind of look at the, the big picture out there, people will say marriage is for um, happiness and for fulfillment and uh, maybe economic, shared economic building. Um, it's for division of labor that we can share work together and, and we can do this thing kind of as, as a partnership. Um, and, and I get that, but I think it's, I don't know, it, it doesn't quite work when you think of marriage that way. Like, will marriage make you happy? I mean, at times. Um, 
Some of you have been married and you'd be like, heck no, it did not make me happy. Like, uh, I, I'll testify to that. Um, the truth is, I think your happiness and sadness is, is emotional things that are based a lot more based on the story you tell yourself about what's going on versus the thing itself. So I would put that disclaimer out there. But I, I would say that marriage is happy at moments and is not happy at moments. There are moments in my own marriage where it is like the sun is shining and the breeze is blowing and it's 75 degrees and it's low humidity and the children are not killing each other and I look over at her and she looks over at me and I just think like this is the most wonderful person in the world and how did I get so lucky and all of that. Like I have moments like that. Um, and then there are moments in marriage where it's like really scary and it's not Halloween and it's like, oh, this is terrifying. Like this is, you know, like it, where it's not good and you, and you struggle. Um, and, and all that to say, if happy is the goal of marriage, anyone who's been married more than a minute can tell you, you're going to be disappointed with this thing. Like it's, it's not going to do that. It's not going to deliver that for you in some consistent way because it was never in designed to do that. It has much higher goals for you than making you happy. It feels weird to even talk about this, right? Because to stand up here and go, hey, marriage, y'all heard of it? Yeah, it's a good thing. Like, because we're in a culture that's so cynical about it. Oh, marriage, I don't, you know, and and I'm up up here going like, it's not for everybody, and I get that, but it's a good thing, and it is God's gift to us and let's not be cynical about it. Let's like talk about what it really, uh, what what it really does. So so one marriage isn't just to make you happy. It's actually designed for you to build this family. That's one thing. But here's the second thing marriage does. Um, it changes you for the better. For the most part, it'll change you for the better. When you become a follower of Jesus, there's a process you go through. When you are baptized into Him, and we we do baptisms at this church, we celebrate that. When someone is baptized, what the Scripture teaches is that God's Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. He lives within you and and starts to to work on you. And you enter into this process called sanctification where you're becoming holy. This is true, married, single, everybody. We are going through this process of sanctification where we're following Jesus and he's making us holy, um, throwing out the bad stuff inside you and and pouring in some good stuff. Um, Marriage is a tool then that God uses for your sanctification. Um, it, it is a way God can shape you and form you through, through that other person. Because when you get married, you make commitments. We call them vows. Um, I've done a lot of weddings here in the last decade. And whenever I meet a couple and ask them what they want in their marriage ceremony, we talk about, do you want a unity candle? Do you want, like, doves to fly? Do you want to tie your hands together? Do you want to wash each other's feet? Do you want to take communion? Do you want to nail a cross together, like, pour sand in? I don't know, like, all the things, right? And, and I've seen and done all of them. And, and, and couples will be like, yeah, I want to do that, not that. I've never had a couple say to me, we don't want to do any vows. I've never, there's no couple, like, yeah, all that like actually committing to the thing, we don't want to do that. We just want you to say some nice words and pray and then we'll kiss and we'll, we'll go off, like we'll be done. No, because we all know vows, the commitment of the thing, where you say, I promise to do this till death do us part, that's, that's the sauce. That's the secret sauce, right? That's, it is making that commitment and saying in a covenant way, not a contractual, not I'll do this only if you do it, but saying I will do this no matter what for you for the rest of my life. That's the commitment you're making, which is scary. I get it. But, but that kind of commitment shapes you 
and changes you. People say, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. No, it isn't. It isn't. It's different than just living with someone or just having a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. It's a different thing. And, and the difference is in those vows and in that commitment, um, it is this strong bond where you grow and change. And that is different than other relationships you've been in. Your parents tried to shape you when you lived at home. They tried to make you into something. They had a vision for you and they, they you know, character and and and. and and ethics and all of that stuff, and they sort of pour that into you for as long as you're in your home, they, they have this say over who you're going to be. And for many of us, they're still telling us who we're supposed to be, doesn't matter how old you are. But there's a limit to that relationship, right? Like at a certain point, we're, we're done there, right? And then you kind of go for, form your own and blaze your own path there. Um, then you have friends as adults, and they're, friends are great, and they can challenge you and push you and encourage you and all of that, and that's awesome, and we all need that. Um, but there's a limit there, too, because if a friend challenges you too much, you just unfriend them, right? You just are like, I'm, I'm done. And, and what you'll say is like, ah, oh, man, I just, I need to cut that negativity out of my life. And so you like sort of unfriend people, and then you post memes about we all need to cut negativity out of our lives and just hang with the people who inspire you or whatever, right? And so we, we do that in real life or online. We sort of cut people off. Um, but when you're married, um, you know, and you're like, oh, I don't want that negativity in my life. Well, you know, the next morning you wake up, that negativity is still there. Like, it, you're like it's not going anywhere. And at that point, you're going to have to figure out how to grow through it, which is actually the beauty of the thing. Now, this is not the fun part, but you grow through that because in a sense, you're stuck. And that sounds horrible. Oh, I don't want to be stuck. I, but like maybe in the best way possible, you are in this thing. And what you're saying in marriage is, I'm going to stay in it. And there's going to be times that you kind of suck, and there's times that I kind of suck, and I'm just still going to be here tomorrow. So let's just grow through the thing and learn. And what you find out in marriage is not how terrible the other person is. Really, you find out how selfish you are. And you, you come face to face with like, oh, yikes. Because when you live in that close proximity to someone and they see you up close and, and, they, and they've made a commitment to stay there, it's like, well, like, I guess we're going to have to work through this. Like, I see you up close, and it's not, there's things that are not great here. Tim Keller says, marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with yourself. Marriage will bring you into a confrontation with yourself because the other person is not the Holy Spirit. They're not, their job is not to change you. Their job is to hold up a mirror and say, this is what it's like to, to be with you, to be around you. And, and there's some great things that can come out of that, and there's some growth that, that will come, come out of that. And in 21 years of marriage, I've seen how selfish I can be. And I've seen where I've blown it. And I've seen where I'm disappointing. And um, it, it's, it's a powerful thing. Um, and when, when you acknowledge that you are the problem, then you can start growing and changing in your marriage. If both people will, in the marriage will acknowledge that they're the problem, right? Like if I say I'm the problem, my wife says, yes, Chris, you're the problem. That doesn't work. What works is if I say I'm the problem and she says, no, I'm the problem, and we both go to work. Because my track record of changing my wife is pretty poor. Like of, of being like, I'm going to fix you of whatever's going on. And you're like, like that does not go well. I, uh, me fixing other people is not great. And you're probably the same way, right? Your track record of fixing you is okay, maybe, or allowing God to fix you is maybe the best you can do. And if each person in the marriage goes, all right, I need to change, I need to grow here, and whatever conflict we're in, let me take responsibility for what I can in the situation. 
well, then you can, then you can be productive. Um, we're really talking about making a commitment to someone and sticking with it. It's the commitment of marriage that is the, the, the character-forming piece of it. David Brooks says it this way, making commitment sounds intimidating, but it's not. Making a commitment simply means falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it that will carry you through when your love falters. That's, that's a great image of marriage and, and several other things. I mean, you make commitments to something and then you live those commitments out and it shapes you and changes you even when you're not feeling it. So that's vocational commitment. I commit to this thing. I'm called to this, this work, to this job, even when I'm not feeling it. That's, that's a commitment. Um, even, though, even though a commitment to a vocation feels like or a job feels like I'm tied down to this job, yeah, you're tied down and it's okay. A commitment to marriage feels like I'm tied down to this person. Yes, you're tied down, but it's okay. A commitment to having children definitely feels like you're tied down. If you've got toddlers, do you feel tied down? Yes, you do. You can't even go out of the house at night. You can't do anything. Uh, Maybe ever again, just kidding, it ends eventually, that's face. Um, it feels like being tied down, but it, it's not a, it doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. Like there's some good things that come out of that. There's good things when you have those limits. If you make a commitment to health and exercise, that means you can't do some things. You can't eat whatever you want. You can't eat all the brownies. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't help. It doesn't help you hit your goals, right? This is the way it is. We make these commitments and then we, we, we build a system around them to, to maintain those commitments, even when our love falters, even when we're not, uh, not always feeling it. And when we embrace those commitments, like marriage, um, it brings about human flourishing. So let me bring you to the last text I want to show you this morning. And this one's from the New Testament. The, the, if, the, the text in Genesis says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh, that whole thing. Jesus quotes that. Uh, when asked about divorce. He says, well, no, like marriage is a one flesh union between a man and woman coming together. That's what, that's what that is. And so you're not just gonna rip that apart. He talks about divorce with that text. The apostle Paul also takes that same text and he even adds another layer to it and teaches us a, a fuller meaning of marriage. So if the first idea of marriage is that we're going to create something and we're gonna build this foundation of a family, and the second idea would be that there's a character formation piece that comes from staying in that commitment and being married, this third idea shows up in Ephesians chapter five. Uh, maybe the most famous text on marriage in the New Testament, besides the one that's like, love is patient, love is kind, that's read at all the weddings. That's not even about marriage, but it's always read at weddings. It's great, it's a good one. But this one, listen to what he says here. He's talking about husbands and wives, and then he goes to this in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Sounds like we're talking about church, right? Not marriage. And then he says, quotes Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's the third thing that your marriage does. Your marriage gives a picture of the gospel. Your marriage is intended to be this, this image of mutual submission and this idea of sacrifice and laying down your preferences and if necessary, laying down your life for the other person in a way that, that, that is an image of Christ and the church. Christ is the groom, church is called the bride of Christ, that we, that we follow him and, and, and that he lays down his life for us. Uh, Paul says, 
That's the bigger picture of marriage. And so your marriage is not just about your love story. It's actually telling this bigger story about what God is doing. And when you live it out uh, faithfully and you selflessly and sacrificially serve the other person, um, it actually tells this bigger, beautiful story to the world. And this is so different than our culture because our culture is going to frame marriage around happiness and fulfillment. Our culture is going to say, get married um, to someone who makes you happy and, and, and people say, I want to marry someone who won't try to change me. Really? They're going to change you. Like the, and, and you probably need to change. Like, all of us have rough edges. There's all stuff that needs to be sanded down. This is part of the deal when you get married. You're not gonna marry someone who won't change you. I wanna marry someone who will support my dreams and and help me feel fulfilled. That's an incredible amount of pressure to put on another human being. Think about it. Their fulfillment, your fulfillment is their responsibility. Like, that's a lot. Maybe you're asking someone to carry something they were never meant to carry. I mean, my broken cup will not hold all your water. It's broken, and yours is broken too. Um, all, of us, all of us are broken. So let me, let me talk about how this might land on the different people in the room, and then we'll wrap this up. Number one, if you are single, uh, I told you I was hesitant to, to talk about this because I, I, I didn't want this to land. You know, I, I give these like, here's how great marriage is, and you're like, thanks for that. Um, Thanks for that pressure today. You and my mom keep talking about it. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that. Um, I, I just want to say two things. One, notice, notice single people. Notice the, the, the narrative and culture about, oh, marriage and blah, 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 and this, you know, and the, the cynicism around it and how we're delaying it because we, because we act like you're supposed to be something else, all these other things first, and then maybe get around to that and all that. Just challenge that and just like, I don't want you to be cynical about it because that's what you're hearing, or that um, you've been surrounded by bad marriages, because I get that. Um, I want to elevate and show you and say, hey, there's something good here, too. Um, and the second thing I would say to single people is, um, and we've done whole sermons on this, you, that, that we've done whole sermons on singles, so we can, we can do that another time. Um, but the second thing I want to say is, the New Testament elevates singleness in a way the ancient world had never even heard of. In the ancient world, if you're Jewish or just like a Roman citizen or whatever, marriage is where it's at. And the New Testament's like, actually, there's, it's a gift, and you can be single, and that's a good thing. Paul was single who wrote that. There's evidence that Timothy was probably single. Jesus himself was single, died as a single man, age 33, single and celibate, which proves that uh, marriage and like sexual satisfaction, all that kind of stuff, is not a requirement for like a fulfilled human existence um, that, that, Jesus, that Jesus modeled for us. He was not deficient in some way. Um, he modeled for us what humanity looks like. And so I think we need to think through that and go like, okay, singleness is, is a thing. And, and maybe, you're, you're gonna, maybe you're called to be single. Maybe, maybe that's the, the space for you because when you are single, um, there are things you can do that married people can't do. That, that there, you have some, some freedom to do some things uh, that can be that can be really good. Um, so that's my thought to singles. If you are married here, um, I hope this message and I hope what you walk out of here with is, is a way to reframe what you're doing. Um, if I asked you how your marriage is going, the first thing I want you to think of is, well, what's it for? Like, because if you, if you evaluate marriage in terms of happiness, it, it, maybe it's disappointing right now or maybe it's not working the way you thought it would be. But if you think about what, why am I in this to begin with, I think there's something really powerful there. I actually, um, I, I 
talked to my wife this morning, not knowing she was going to say what she did, but I, I talked to her and I said, um, I said, man, I, I just, I love you. I love being married to you. Like, it's, it's awesome. And then, of course, like, I just keep talking and take it too far. And so I was like, I was like, you should be married to you. Like, it's, it's that great. And she's like, actually, I've, I've thought about that. Like, I would, <laughs> you know, she's just kind of like, oh, that's not a bad idea. And I, that, so then I'm like backpedaling, right? And I'm like, I'm like, well, I mean, married to me is not like, uh, I'm not so t- heinous, am I? Like, so terrible to be married to. And she goes, she's like, no, but marriage isn't about my happiness anyway. And I'm like, oh, that's a good woman right there. Like, she, she understands what we're doing here. She knows. She didn't even read my sermon, y'all. Like, she just knew. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's something to that of how you frame the thing really changes your experience of it, of what you think you're doing there and why. Um, I think if we can think of marriage in terms of this is a traveling companion that the Lord has given me on the climb together, um, it's, a, it's a different thing. And I know there are marriages that are struggling in here. I, I read the prayer requests and pray over them. I talk to people, um, and I hope you get some counseling and talk to us and let us know, and we will connect you. We're looking at doing a marriage seminar in, in January. We're looking at doing an event for singles in February. We're kind of trying to talk about, have those conversations um, and so we're trying to put resources out there so that wherever you're at, um, there, there's a connection point for you. But if your marriage is struggling, um, hang in there and go to counseling, not just a one-time check it off on my way out, but like get in there and do the work. Because if you can get through that tunnel of chaos, it's quite possible and quite likely actually that you come out on the other side and you have built something stronger. Um, I... I'm a big fan of Alex Honnold, the uh, rock climber. I've just really been interested in what he does. Um, maybe you've seen him before. He, um, he's a free solo climber, so he climbs up rock faces without any ropes and without any other people. So he just goes up by himself, climbs. Um, here's a picture of him doing that um, without ropes. And um, I don't know about you, like I can't even look at that picture without my hands sweating. Like, it just makes me nervous. Like, I get kind of shaky uh, when I see what he does. And he's really incredible at his, at his sport. Um, in June of 2017, he climbed El Capitan in Yosemite in California. It's the 3,000-foot straight-up wall. He did it in just under four hours. He climbed it, started at 5.30 in the morning and climbed it in four hours um, with no ropes um, and just cameras watching him or whatever. Um, And I think it is maybe the most remarkable athletic achievement of my lifetime that someone could do that, Uh, just what he had to do. And and, and I I watched the movie Free Solo about him, and there was two things that were interesting. One is the discipline, mental and physical, of what he did to climb that. Um, If you are, if you like to see how someone gets into their craft and like what they have to do to make something work, it's impressive to watch how he did it. Uh, it's incredible. So that was interesting to me. But the second thing that was interesting in the movie, and I think this was intentional in the way they shot it, the second thing that was interesting was how poor his relationships are, particularly his relationship with his girlfriend, this girl he was dating, and um, maybe they're still together. I I really followed it. But uh, they're dating, and it's so obvious in the movie how how she is such a distant second place in his life to climbing that it's, it's uncomfortable at times of, of how he does something that's very risky and deadly and she's freaking out and he's kind of like, oh well, you know, and, um, and weird too, like they go climbing together with ropes and he actually falls and hurts himself and he, he sort of indirectly blames her, like before I met you, I'd never hurt myself, you know, that kind of thing. 
not awesome. Um, I don't know where the relationship is now, but I, I just thought, man, like, he's climbing a mountain and he's missing the other one. He's missing what else there could be here because one day he'll, assuming he lives, one day he will hang up the shoes and not do this anymore. And, and it's the relationships that we are in that matter, friendships and, and marriage and all that. And I, and I thought, man, he's, he's, he's missing it. And he's doing what our culture says, which is go be successful. And he's doing that really well. But I think he's missing something. Um, and, and I thought about at this point just giving you some examples of like how marriage is great for you and what it can be and, and all that kind of stuff from marriages I know or my own marriage or whatever. Um, but I thought instead I'll just tell you this. Um, Robertson McQuilkin was the president of a Bible college from 1968 to 1990. And during those decades of being the president, he wrote a lot of books. Uh, the school doubled in size. They started radio stations, all sorts of stuff. Um, his book on understanding and interpreting the, the, new, the Bible um, was actually a book I had to read in undergrad. Um, so real smart guy. Um, in 1990, he resigned as the president of that college. And he did so because his wife of 40 years um, had Alzheimer's, and it was progressing and gotten pretty bad. Um, I want you to hear, I've got a clip from his resignation speech in 1990. Um, I want you to hear what he says about why he did it. Um, watch this on the screen. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Robertson resigned and cared for Muriel uh, for 13 years. She died in 2003, and he died in 2016. He's an author, so he wrote a book about caring for someone with Alzheimer's. The book was called um, A Promise Kept. And I haven't read it, um, but I thought, that, that's it. That's what it is. You make a promise, you make a commitment, 
And then over time, those promises and those commitments make you. And they shape you. And this is what marriage has the power to do. Um, it, can, it can shape you and form you into something greater. And as I hear that story, I think that's, that's the kind of marriage I want. And if happiness is the goal, I'm sure caring for someone with Alzheimer's like that for 13 years is not, anyone would describe that as happiness. If happiness was the goal, then that's going to be disappointing. But, the, but what a beautiful picture of selflessness and sacrifice. What a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us, of the gospel. Um, that's what marriage is, and that's what we're aiming for. It is a traveling companion um, on the journey in, in, in sickness and in health. This is, this is second mountain stuff. And uh, it's not always easy, but it is good, and it is God's gift. Let's pray. God, I pray for the marriages in this room, that they will be healthy and strong. I pray that we will look at examples like Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin, and we will, um, we will be inspired by that, and we will do the work it takes to have the decades that last, mar- the marriages that last for decades and that, that grow and flourish. Um, God, I, I pray we would not settle for mediocrity of just getting by, of just being roommates, but that we would um, drive deeper into love. And um, yeah, I, I pray you help marriages that are struggling in this room to, to reach out and, and get the support so that they can flourish. God, for single people in the room, um, I pray that they this helps um, put some handles on what marriage could be. Um, and uh, I pray that it, if it is your will, you bring uh, the right people in their lives too to, to make those connections. Um, God, thank you for the family that is this church and the connections that we have with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.